series in which we're just studying the topic of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue that this morning. Uh, just by way of review from last week, just in case you missed it, the whole reason why we're even studying this topic really boils down to what your fundamental idea would be in regards to what is the point of the Christian life. Like when Jesus calls you to be a disciple, why does he do that? What is the main reason for that, the main function for that? How you answer that question decides everything in regards to your view of the Holy Spirit. And so the, most, the two most common things that I often hear in response to that question, which we talked about last week, is that for many people they say, well, I'm a Christian now, I became a Christian so I could be a good person. As if the whole end goal of Christianity is for you to be nice. Well, you know, I used to cuss and now I don't, I used to cheat. Now, I mean, listen. I'm not saying that our character would not be affected by our following after Jesus, but if you think the end goal of being a Christian is about being a nice person or a good person, you don't need the Holy Spirit, you just need a self-help book. Like, that's all you need. Like, you don't need to worry about being empowered by the Holy Spirit for anything because you're just trying to figure out how to give up this little habit or this little thing. But the second most common response I hear is, the reason why you become a Christian is so that Jesus will forgive you of your sins so that when you die, you can go to heaven. And I hear that all the time. And I'm not even saying that that's wrong, like, God, like Jesus didn't die for our sins to forgive so we go to heaven. But that's not the main point of Christianity, because if it were the main point, you don't need the Holy Spirit. Right? It's, Jesus already did that. He took care of that for us. Now we just hang on until death. But I don't think that's really the end goal of Christianity, what Jesus has in mind when he calls us to follow after him. When Jesus calls us to follow after him, I think what he has in mind is the very same thing that he did, which was to expand the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is whatever God wants to happen, happens here on earth. And he's expanding the kingdom of God. And so when he calls the disciples to follow after him, he doesn't say, now everyone try to be nice, or hey, hang on until we die and get to go to heaven. What he says is, you're going to go out to all the world, and you're going to declare the gospel, and it becomes an adventure. And so what happens is, it is Jesus telling us still to pray, like his prayer for us is still, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is where? In heaven. So until we see that disparity between what we actually experience here on earth begin to reflect what it is like in heaven, we're not done, and Jesus has called us out to do that. And I want you to know up front, this is so important even for our kids and our young people because they'll give their lives to things that are risk and adventure. And what I want to say is, no, kingdom work and advancement is adventure. So you can think of it like Lord of the Rings if you want to. Where are you going? I'm going on an adventure. Now, you need to know ahead of time that adventure is full of risk and full of danger. And it's going to require courage. And you have no idea what might confront you at any turn. But what we at least can see in the New Testament is when kingdoms advance, there's collisions of kingdoms. That's why one of the predominant metaphors for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is spiritual warfare. What he's saying is, listen, if you follow after Jesus and he sends you out into the world to advance the kingdom of God, it will come into collision with other kingdoms, predominantly Satan's kingdom. And so you can expect to be engaged in the demonic realm. That's why Paul will remind us in Ephesians 6 verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But rather, it's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And if you're going to do that, which I think is what we've been called to, now the Holy Spirit's important. Because you could do that out of one of two ways. You could do it in your own power and your own strength. And you'll see some limited success if you do go out and in your own strength and in your own giftedness begin to advance the kingdom of God. But how it was intended from the very beginning is that you would do so empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises us that as he sends us out, I'm going to be with you. 
always. And he'll say in Matthew 28, even until the end of the age. Remember that from last week, what Jesus says? I'm going to be with you always, even until the end of the age, which you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Like, what age is he referring to? And so we talked about this last week. We are living what I would call as the in-between times. And in-between times, an age that exists that started at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and will continue until the second coming of Jesus. And so I want to talk more about this in just a moment, but this is kind of a background of where we were last week. If you missed it, the podcast is online. You can catch it out, catch it at our, our website. But as I continue on for the second week here, I, let me share with you, one of my dreams in life is to finally get to go to Italy and tour the entire country, but specifically, I've always wanted to go to Rome and see all the things that I've always read about and studied about. Anyone ever go to, anyone ever been to Italy? Ever been to, anyone, anyone? Just a handful of people? Just each service has kind of been a handful. And I'm thinking, us living stoners, we need to get out more. Like maybe next year we should just have a living stoner vacation to Italy together next, next year. We'll, we'll kind of plan for it. You know, I would love to go to Rome. And specifically, do you know what's in Rome? The Vatican. And I'd love to go to the Vatican. I think... I think the Pope would really like me, and we would do well in conversation, just eating some gelato and just talking and shooting the breeze. I, I really like the, the new Pope. But anyhow, what's at the Vatican then is he'll, he'll after we're done with our gelato, the Pope will give me a tour of the Vatican, and he'll show me they have there the oldest biblical manuscripts in the world. And they have a collection of the greatest pieces of art that anyone has ever seen. In fact, just the Sistine Chapel itself alone is considered one of the greatest works of art in the entire Italian Renaissance. It, it was actually created back in 1481 by Pope Sixtus, which I like that name. Pope Sixtus built the Sistine Chapel, and what he did is he called in all the finest artists and sculptors in the world, including a man named Michelangelo, to paint the Sistine Chapel. Now, the enormous size of the paintings would be impressive enough, but until very recently, this is what's interesting to me, until very recently, if you looked up at the Sistine Chapel at the ceiling and looked at all the paintings, what you would notice is they appeared on cracked surfaces and the colors were predominantly a dingy white or a drab olive green. In fact, many art scholars throughout the years have tried to debate what kind of mood the artist must have been in or what they had available to them to paint in such kind of dreary and lifeless colors until in 1904, a series of four different restoration projects that would span the entire course of the 20th century began to be proposed and enacted. And what's interesting is a lot of people opposed the restoration project because they thought that they don't know what, well, we have no idea what might come at the end of this. And they were worried that the picture that they were accustomed to and used to would be different or would somehow be marred. And so there's actually quite a bit of resistance to the restoration project. But what happened is as the restoration projects went underway and they began to remove all the filth that collected over centuries, you can just imagine this, the soot and the candles and the dust just for centuries, as they began to remove that, they discovered quite a different picture. That the artist had not used olive greens or dingy whites, but rather brilliant colors of nearly fluorescent greens and bright oranges. You can kind of see a before and after picture. And then the next one is a, the before and after of the creation story, that Michelangelo. And so what happens, all of the neglect and dust and dirt over the centuries had actually marred the picture that the artists were trying to get across. And it wasn't until that cleaning project took place that people could really see what the, what the artists had intended from the very beginning. In fact, the pictures went from a dreary, almost dull story to one that was very bright and very vibrant, the story of God's salvation history painted on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. 
And what I would say is oftentimes our biblical understanding and picture of the Holy Spirit is much the same way. After years of either neglect or maybe dirt or filth that comes from our experiences or our traditions that we grew up in, it sometimes changes the face of the biblical picture. And over the years, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which has been marred by neglect and tradition and ignorance, the result is we begin to think about the Holy Spirit and view the Holy Spirit in a completely different way than God ever intended. And it's easy for us even to get a little accustomed to what we see, to kind of like or at least be comfortable with the Holy Spirit that we presently have. And it's easy then to oppose any idea of kind of removing and having a restoration project to see whether this is truly the vibrant nature of the Spirit like God always intended. And what happens is anytime we talk about the Holy Spirit, there might be, at least in some of us, a little bit of nervousness, like a little bit of anxiety, like, well, where is he going with this? Like, is he going to have us all speaking in tongues, or is this going to be one of those crazy churches? And you know, you know it's like, I don't know what your background is or where you came from. In fact, I got a video of a great Pentecostal service that, uh, when I saw, like, sometimes people are like, is this what you're talking about? Like, is this what's going to happen next? So take a look at this, and let me address this in just a moment. Go ahead and take a look at this. Foolish virgins in will find they have here been left behind. With their empty vessels and the left for dead. They awoke themselves to try, for they left some more to buy. But the bridegroom comes and we have gone with him. I will be by. Like running, like running. Okay, watch the guy in the blue shirt here in a second. Okay, now watch the baptistry in the back. I'm going swimming. Watch this. Okay, that, that's enough. Okay, um, like it's a Fitbit they're all wearing, and they just needed more steps in. I guess I don't. Uh, I showed this to Kelly, like for her reaction. And you know what her reaction was? How come the women can't run up and down? Like, that's your reaction? Like, like. So listen, I'm not. This is not where we're headed. Although if Randy Templeton runs up and down this aisle, I'm going to think that's kind of funny. But what I'd say is, now listen, there's no need to have fear and anxiety. I, I do believe that God intended for the Holy Spirit to be an active, experiential part of our daily life, just as God's people. And God intended the Holy Spirit would be a source of power for us, not only as the church, but for us personally to imitate Jesus. And I would say, unfortunately for most of us, that Holy Spirit has been a dull enigma that no one is quite sure what to do with. And rather than being the exciting and vibrant part of our lives, He's sort of been reduced to a speculative, even somewhat negative aspect of Christianity. The bright color of the Holy Spirit has, over time, turned into a dingy, wider, drab, olive green Holy Spirit. And we just need a restoration project, if you will, to open up the biblical picture to see what God intended more clearly. So let me ease your minds with what Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 11. Verse 11 says this, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish... We'll give him a snake instead. <laughs> like, right? That's ridiculous. Like, Dad, can I have a fish? Now, here's a snake, son. Like, that's just ridiculous, right? Or if he asks for an egg, were you really going to give him a scorpion? And then Jesus says, 
if you then, though you are evil, which is not a big pick-me-up in terms of self-affirmation, like, though you are evil, if even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, this is how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Like, you're safe asking God for more of the Holy Spirit. Like, you don't need to have any fear or anxiety that, oh, He's going to embarrass me, or the next thing you know, I'm going to be, eyes will roll back in my head, and I'll be convulsing on the floor, speaking in some language that nobody, I mean, like, listen, He's not out to embarrass you. He is a good God and a gracious God who loves you, and if you ask for more of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to have any fear or anxiety in that. In fact, what I'd say about our God is He typically will not give you anything that you don't want. Like, He's kind of a gentleman like that. Now, every once in a while, He'll take like the Apostle Paul and slam him face down on the road to Damascus and say, oh, guess what? But in the main, for the rest of us, He tends to kind of respect our free will. And if you don't want more of the Holy Spirit, He's not going to force it on you. Like, if there's some gift from the Spirit that you don't want, chances are you're probably not going to get it. Like, if there's some aspect in the life of the Spirit that you're like, uh, no, thank you, God typically will not force that on you. But what I would say is we should pursue the Holy Spirit. And listen to the posture. The posture is an active pursuit of more of the Holy Spirit, which is different than just being, well, I'm open to the idea. Like, you know that demeanor, right, that countenance of, well, I'm open to it. Like, I don't know what I think about this, but, you know, I'm open, whatever God wants to do. Now, being open to something doesn't get us very far in either relationship, right? Like, if, if Kelly came to me and said, you know, well, we're talking, and I said, I'm open to having a good marriage. You know, like, she'd be like, open? <laughs> like, no, man, we need to pursue a good marriage. You don't, like, just be open to it. Or let's say you're having major surgery tomorrow, right? The surgeon walks in, you're in consultation. If that surgeon looks at you and says, you know, I'm, I'm open to the surgery going well and being successful for us. Like, you're like, nope, I need a new surgeon. I want one who walks in here and says, no, this is going to go well because I've done 2,000 of these and I'm very confident, right? Your financial advisor says, I'm open to you making a profit this year. You're like, no, no, I need better than that. Same thing with, like, don't be just open to the Holy Spirit. We want to pursue the Holy Spirit and trust that Jesus tells us he is a good father. He's not going to hand us a snake or a scorpion when we ask him for the Holy Spirit. And I want every gift and resource that God wants to give to me, I want to receive it. And so it goes back to that adventure idea. Like, if you're not on an adventure, you don't need the Holy Spirit. But if you're sending me out into the world to represent Jesus and to advance the kingdom of God, then give me whatever it is that you have available. Like, if you send me out with a hatchet, I guess I'll make do with that. But if you're telling me that I could be sent out and not only have a hatchet, but I could have food and matches and a tarp and sleeping gear and a compass and a flashlight and a first aid kit and a Swiss Army knife and fuel and a generator and an RV, I'll take all of that. And that's what I'm saying. God doesn't want to send you out with a hatchet. He wants to send you out fully equipped with everything that you need to encounter other kingdoms. And in that... You'll need to pursue the Holy Spirit and simply let your continual prayer be, Father, I need more of the Holy Spirit. And so let me talk about, just theologically, for just about that Holy Spirit. And just so you know, we're talking about a person here when we talk about the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is the Spirit is not an energy, and it's not the force. Like, sometimes we use that language, right? Like, it's the force behind God. Now, listen. The Spirit is not an impersonal object. It's not some dispassionate ghost. The Holy Spirit isn't an it. It is personified with real pronouns in the Scripture, most predominantly He. Now, don't let that throw you off in terms of some sort of gender thing because it's God, and God is not bound by gender things that we have here on earth. But what the Scriptures are trying to tell us is the Holy Spirit is not an it. It is a He. It is a person in regards to relationship. 
Specifically, the Holy Spirit is a person within what we call the Trinity, which is a big theological fancy word that still has a lot of mystery to it. And it's not even in the Bible, although the concept and principles, I think, are there. And if I could just give you a definition of the Trinity, is this. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. Now, this definition expresses three crucial truths. One, that the, Holy, that the, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct, meaning Jesus is God, but He's not the Father. And Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Those are distinct persons. The Holy Spirit is God, but He's not the Son, and He's not the Father. And you'll see this most uh, predominantly displayed. Remember the baptism of Jesus, right, where He's in the Jordan River and His cousin John the Baptist is baptizing Him? So what happens is you've got God the Father who's in heaven whose voice speaks. And you've got God the Son who's actually in the water getting baptized, and then you've got the Holy Spirit that is descending in the form of a dove. They're all God, but they are distinct in persons. Number two, we affirm that each, each person of the Trinity is fully God, that when you read the Scriptures, it will define God, uh, the Father as God. When you read through the New Testament, it will describe Jesus as God. When you read through the rest of the Scriptures, it will define the Spirit as God. All three are God. And yet, the third thing, and the most mysterious is, and yet, there's only one God. And yet, there's only, we are monotheistic in religion, meaning there's only one God. And many scholars for 2,000 years have been trying to explain the mystery that is the Trinity, and it is difficult, and they use different uh, illustrations, and most of them always fall short. But one of my favorites is, it's sort of like, you know, like water, H2O, right? Like H2O come in how many forms? Three different forms, right? It could be an ice. Or it could be a liquid, like water that we drink. Or it could be like in a, a form of a gas, like clouds and steam and vapor, those sorts of things. Now, all three of those are still what? H2O, still water. But it comes in three different ways. Same way with the Trinity. Like, all are God, but they come in three distinct ways, Father, Son, and the Spirit. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to live in us and to empower us for this present age. Now, I ended last week with this idea of what, where are we at in terms of time, according to the Bible. Talk about that for just a little bit, that we're in between the times. Now, I'm actually looking forward to one day Jesus is going to come back to the earth. I have no idea when it's going to be, and I'm getting a little impatient right now. I don't mind confessing. But one day Jesus is going to return to the earth, and when he does, no one that I know and love will ever get cancer again. No one. I'll never have to walk with anyone through cancer or deal with that disease whatsoever. So if you are an oncologist right now, either a doctor or a nurse, like, we love you, but in the new heaven and new earth, you're going to be without a job. Like, we just don't, we don't need you anymore. Now, Jesus is going to find you another job, so don't panic. Don't be worried. You will not be unemployed. We just don't need you to treat cancer. It will no longer exist. When Jesus returns, my guess is when you flip on to the evening news, it's going to be kind of boring. Like, in fact, you probably won't watch it very much because there won't be any stories of abuse anymore or tragedy or scandal or earthquakes. Creation itself that has been groaning for its redemption will finally be realized. So if anyone in the room is insulin dependent and have been fighting diabetes for years, I know. Like, I know, you're sick of it. But don't worry, it's just temporary. When Jesus returns, you'll never have to deal with it again. You never have to take another shot. never have to worry about your blood sugar levels, any of those sorts of things. If anyone in the room is tired of going to yet another funeral and saying goodbye to somebody that you love, what I want to say to you is, listen, good news, it's just temporary. There's a day coming when Jesus returns. It will never happen again. 
or if anyone in the room is just tired of dealing with some sin in their life or some addiction that they kept swearing will never go back to, and yet I keep having all these inclinations and drives, and uh, I keep going back to the very same thing, and it's sabotaging my life. Don't worry. There's a day coming when you won't have those anymore. Or just anyone who's discouraged by, you know, you're kind of older now, and you have memories of what your body used to be able to do, but now because of the aging process, you can't make it from one room to the other without being out of breath and just exhausted. Like, good news. There's a day coming when the aging process of our bodies will no longer be in effect. And it's when Jesus returns. And that's why John, the apostle, will write in Revelation, look, there's a day coming. Chapter 21, verse 1, he describes it like this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to what He does in verse 4 here. He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, who is Jesus, said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So there's a day coming, a new age, the great day of the Lord, and I look forward to it. But even though it's not here yet, you know what I can say honestly? At least I don't live in the old age. Like the one where there's no overlapping line, that the old age, because whatever consequence you could imagine from the fall of humanity, that's exactly what you got. So if you got sick, you stayed sick. Every once in a great while, God might perform a miracle through Elisha or Elijah, but there's no inbreaking of the kingdom of God for healing. You just remain sick. Or death was it. Or sin was for you an ever-present reality that required some sort of propitiation from you, which meant you were always having to trek back to Jerusalem to go to the temple with your animals to make a sacrifice, hoping to get the forgiveness of sins. The presence of God was not a permanent reality. In fact, you had to figure out, how do I obey? I obey over 600 different commands and, and try to figure out how to please God in that particular way. And that's the old age, and praise God, I'm not there. And even in the old age, particularly described in the Old Testament, the role of the Holy Spirit was greatly different than what we experience now. The Holy Spirit existed. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. He's been around forever. But His role was completely different by way of function and time. In fact, we don't have time to go through all of Genesis to Malachi to study the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament. But if you were to, these are some of the observations I think that you would make coming out of it. Number one... Just because you were part of God's people, an Israelite, did not mean that you received the Holy Spirit. You did not necessarily get an anointing of the Holy Spirit just because you were among God's people. In fact, it appears that only some select leaders and individuals were ever given the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And if you were to ask yourself, well, what's the criteria? Like, how do you get picked to get an anointing from the Holy Spirit? You'll come up frustrated because there really isn't one. It just looks like in God's sovereignty, He decides who He's going to anoint anoint, and who He is not. The other thing you'll notice is when the Spirit does anoint you in your life, it could just be sporadic, meaning just because an individual had the Spirit didn't mean it was permanent. The Spirit could have come and empower when necessary and then just withdraw. So you see this all the time in the story of Samson. Like remember the story of Samson in the Old Testament? The Spirit will will come upon Samson, give him great strength, and then disappear. 
In fact, uh, in the story of King David, remember when he has an affair with Bathsheba and he's confronted by the prophet? He'll immediately go and he'll write Psalm 51. And in the psalm, one of the things that he begs God to do is, please do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Because he recognizes this is not a permanent reality in my life. Or uh, King Saul will receive an anointing of the Spirit and then he'll be gone. In fact, it'll be replaced by a tormenting spirit, is what the Scriptures tell us. In Isaiah 63, all of Israel will have removed from them the Holy Spirit. But even in that old age, like that praise God we don't live in, but even in that old age, God would send prophets to tell His people, hey, there's a new age coming. This old age is not going to last forever. There is a new age that is coming, and when it does get here, the Holy Spirit is going to be a major part of it. Like the Holy Spirit is going to take on a completely different function and role. In fact, the Holy Spirit will impact even one person specific in such a way it changes everything. And so the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, I don't, do you remember who Jesse is? Like, it's not Dukes of Hazard. Remember who Jesse is? Like, this is King David's dad. So what the prophet is saying is somebody from the line of David is going to come forth. In verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It'll be the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Or later in Isaiah 61, verse 1, this is what it says, talking about that, that hope of this person being anointed. It'll say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, if that passage sounds familiar to you, it should. You know why? Because Jesus quotes it when he goes and preaches at his hometown synagogue. He turns to this passage, reads it, and then says, this scripture has now been fulfilled in your hearing. Or the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 says, listen, the days are coming. Like They're still in the old age, but what Jeremiah says is, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them up by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was like a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'm going to be their God and they will be my people, which by the way, that language is what we just read in Revelation chapter 21. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Or when you get to Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet Ezekiel says, On behalf of God, I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And later in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 28, it says, Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, but what will I do? I'm going to pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares this. Now listen, there's a lot of passages that we could go through. Let me give you just one more, because it's important, and, bring, and just keep this in your mind. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. The prophet Joel says this, Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'm going to pour out my spirit in those days. So you see what's happening? Like the people, even in the old age, are looking forward to a time when God's spirit will be among us in a way that's never been like before. And that's exactly what happened. Like one day in God's timing, the spirit did fall on a particular man in a way that the world had never seen before. A man named Yeshua, who was from the town of Nazareth. 
we call him Jesus. And so when we ask, how did Jesus do the things that he did in his ministry, which are really quite incredible? The answer is this, because he had the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do those very things. In fact, it's the same, not a different one, the same Holy Spirit that now lives in you. The Spirit anointed Jesus. And that's why when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, what we're declaring is he is the anointed one, or in Hebrew, the Mashiach is the Hebrew word for he's been anointed. By, see, I almost spit there when I said the Hebrew? That's what happens when you speak Hebrew. It's the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and launched the new age the one that we are now presently living in. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, he's about to ascend back up to his father. Do you remember what he does? He calls all of his disciples together, and he gives them some instructions. I don't know if you remember what it is, so let me read it to you. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I think was what it was. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've even heard me speak about. Now, you know what he's talking about here? For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they gathered around him, and they began asking, Well, Lord, when, when, are you, when is the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds, Listen, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then what happens? You're going on an adventure. That's what he says. I'm sending you out on an adventure. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you're going to do that, you're going to need the gift that I was talking to you about, the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you keep reading the story of Acts in Acts chapter 2, they're all, they're, they obeyed Jesus. They all, they're hanging out in Jerusalem. They're all waiting. And it's the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. When the day, day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then suddenly, just imagine if this were us in this room right now. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, here it would just be somebody snoring next to you, but back then, violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw it, what seemed to be like tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, here in Acts 2, when they spoke in other tongues, it was literally other languages. And so you had these ordinary, uneducated fishermen from Galilee who could all of a sudden speak Egyptian. And what happens is that in Jerusalem, the Egyptians who have poured in, who were Jewish for the day of Pentecost, are like, oh my goodness, they're speaking Egyptian. And they're speaking, like, everyone could hear the gospel presentation in their own languages. And finally the crowd's like, wait a minute, they got to be drunk. That's what's happening. Like, these, these guys are just drunk off their butt, right? And so what happens in verse 14 Peter gets up, and it says he stands up with the other 11, and he raises his voice and addresses the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. <laughs> to which I'm thinking, I've seen people drunk at 9 in the morning. Like, I'm not sure this is overly convincing to me. No, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Remember where we were just at in Joel chapter 2? That's what Peter says. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. See, what Peter just did is he got up and he said, we've been waiting for centuries for God to finally break in and to give us the Holy Spirit. And what you're seeing happening at this very moment is it. A new age has broken in. It is the age of the Spirit. 
And so what I can say is, look, I'm looking forward to the new age when Jesus comes back. The one where there's no more death or no more sickness, no more tears. But I can at least say, praise God, I don't live in that old age. Where today, when people are sick, we pray and sometimes we see healing. We're not living by the law anymore because I can't even keep up with 600 commands. You know what I'm living by? Grace. I don't have to trek my butt to Jerusalem every time I sin with an animal in hand because now in this new age, my sins have been taken care of by the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I don't have, maybe even sporadically like they used to, an anointing of God's presence. I have a permanent indwelling of God's presence that never leaves me. But because I don't yet live in the new age, and because that old age still affects us, right? We're living in between the times, but both ages kind of overlap one another. Here's the truth. There are times when I just feel weak. And there are times when I just feel exhausted. And I want to be triumphant in terms of the kingdom, but I'll just be honest with you. There are days and weeks where it feels more like I'm against the ropes and Satan's beating the snot out of me. And what I'd say is, right, we'll face that. But when we do, it's the Holy Spirit that goes to work. When you feel weak, when you feel tired, when you feel like Satan is getting the best of you, when it feels like you're walking through yet another moment of suffering, what I would say to you is, praise God, because we live in the age of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that now goes to work to empower us in the midst of our weakness and our suffering. It's what the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 8. Now, it's kind of lengthy, but hear, hear him out here. He says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings, which by the way, that means giving your life to Jesus does not mean you don't ever suffer. Sometimes you hear that in presentations, like, oh, if you give your life to Jesus, everything will be perfect. No, no. You give your life to Jesus, you will still walk through pain and suffering. But here's what Paul says. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Which, by the way, this would be good news to those in Nepal who've been walking through these earthquakes and brought under the freedom and glory of the children of God. In fact, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, sort of like the pains of childbirth, right up to this very present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, and we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, even the redemption of our bodies, right? So we make it from one room to the other without being out of breath. For it is in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, look at verse 26. This is key. Look at verse 26. In the same way, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your inability to even know what to say to God in prayer, you know what the Spirit's doing for you? Interceding on your behalf. In a continual conversation with another part of the Trinity, the Father, on your behalf. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he pre- who He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And so when Paul steps back and thinks about the Spirit's work in his life in the midst of his weaknesses and sufferings, he says, and how do we respond to that? If God's for us, who in the world can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And then who is it then that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All conditions of weakness. He says, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered but sheep to be slaughtered. But no, listen, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither nor present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're feeling tired, if you feel weak, if you feel like you're just a constant let down to God, or if you feel like Satan has you against the ropes and you're taking a beating, I've got good news for you. The Spirit is already at work. If you ever sat with a loved one and just felt completely helpless, like have you ever been in a hospital situation with somebody that you loved and they were really not okay, like they looked dire? It's in those moments as you're sitting there, what you recognize is there's nothing you could do about this, nothing. All you can do is just sit there. And it's the most helpless feeling in the world. Sometimes in the spiritual life, that's what it feels like. We're helpless. What it says, oh, no, you're not. This is when the Holy Spirit that's in us immediately goes to work. It's in that weakness that we will only experience in the in-between time that the Spirit shows up and empowers us to continue to be used as instruments of God. So if if you don't think you're good enough for the mission of Jesus, let me just say this, you aren't. (laughs) But that's why you have the Holy Spirit. And if you think to yourself, I don't think I'm smart enough for what Jesus has called me to, the answer is, you're not. But that's why you have the Holy Spirit. And if you think to yourself, I don't think I'm holy enough or righteous enough or I don't have enough Bible memorized to do this. Let me just say, right, you don't and you aren't. But that's why you have the Holy Spirit. And it's in our moments of greatest weakness that prayer takes effect in such a way where the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and expresses things to the Father that we don't even know how to express. And I don't know if you've ever had that situation, like you wanted to pray for somebody, but you didn't really know what to pray for. Have you ever had that situation? Like, oh, I really want to pray for this person, but I'm not even sure what I'm like. What is it? Don't let it stress you. The Spirit's already got it. He's already praying and interceding on our behalf. So if you need strength, and if you need power, and if you're tired, just ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Don't be anxious in it. He's not going to give you a a scorpion or a snake. You know, that Spirit is going to empower us to make it to the new age. And I know sin gets old, and feeling the effects of the old age could be trying, but here's the good news. God wants to give you more of the Holy Spirit to make it through. For some of you, I know you have this heart passion to do something great for God, but then when you look at your life, you think, I'm so small and so little and so weak and insignificant. How in the world can I? To which I'd say, oh, I know, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, you could storm the gates of hell and declare victory for Jesus. This is God's promise. 
one day we would be living in an age where we would receive God's Spirit. He would never leave us. That because of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus Himself will be with, with us always, even to the end of the age, so that we can fulfill what it is that Jesus has assigned us to do. We are living in that age. Now, next week, I want to about how exactly does the Spirit empower us. So we're going to talk next week about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which should be a good conversation because I know that could be controversial. We're going to talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But for now, let me just say to you, if you're feeling weak and tired and battered in life, yeah, it's because we still have the effects of that old age. But the good news is it's more of the Spirit to empower us to make it to the end. If you wouldn't mind, let's all stand together. Let's invite the band to come back up here. Let's pray and ask God to give us more of that. Father, we come to you and we ask for more of the Holy Spirit. What we're grateful is that you are a good God and a good Father who knows how to give gifts to your children. So we pray that there be no anxiety, no fear in us. We know that you're not trying to embarrass us or humiliate us. And yet what we want is to receive whatever it is that you have to offer to us. I mean, to the fullest extent, we don't want to uh, shrink back or to reject any good gift that you wish to extend to us that we might use it for your glory and also just to live a life of abundant life. And so I pray for those who at this moment are weak or tired or battered or suffering, that you would hold them up and that the work of the Spirit would be in their life in such a way that it encourages them to bring honor to you and glory to your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.